Our reading today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, 37 through 45. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he, he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I, I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. Before I actually start the sermon today, I want to tell you a little uh, story that has to relate somewhat. Today I'm going to be going back and forth between the Gospels, looking at the different accounts of this story. But I, I, I have a story to tell you. It's kind of cute and funny, and I got permission to tell it, okay? so, so. Uh, A week or so ago, I forget, just a prayer meeting, uh, Sal and I were walking out, um, and he said, oh, he said, come over here. So he took me to the back of his car, and he said, you see this? Uh, and there was some scratches on the back of his car. And he said, yeah. He says, a guy backed, I pulled in Wednesday night, a guy backed out from behind and ran into my car. It was such superficial scratches. So we just exchanged information, and he went off, and I went into prayer meeting. And I came out of prayer meeting, and I started back out, and there was this grinding, grinding, grinding. And he got out, and he looked, and a little further, and it wasn't just superficial scratches. He had pushed the tailpipe and the muffler all into the rear tire, and so it was quite extensive damage. So Sal's pointing all this out, and Linda comes out and meets us, and smiling, she says, oh, Sal telling you about the clown that hit us? It caused a lot of damage. And we both like, what? And Sal, oh. So she looks at Sal and says, oh, you didn't tell him. It was a clown. What do you mean, a clown? Yeah, he was dressed up like a clown. <laughs> and Sal said, oh yeah, I didn't tell her that. Tell him that. And then I said, that's why we have four Gospels. Everything that Sal said to me was absolutely 100% true. It was focused on the damage to the car. Linda, the color commentator, okay, noticed that, that the thing that struck her was the guy was dressed like a clown. Everything she said was absolutely true. But if it's only got combining the two, did we get the whole picture? And that's why we have the four Gospels, and so I'll be jumping back and forth a little bit here to try to bring in this whole picture of what we're going to be doing today. So today we're going to start with a, with a little culture little art culture to be specific. Can I have the picture, please? This is Raphael's 
famous painting, The Transfiguration. Uh, Raphael was together with Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, considered to be one of the most influential painters of his time. The Transfiguration is considered to be one of Raphael's best works, though he died before he actually completed the whole thing. One of his students finished the lower left area. And one analysis of the painting states, Transfiguration can be considered as an intro of both mannerism and evidenced by the stylized poses of the figures at the bottom of the painting and of Baruch painting as evidenced by the dramatic tension that we can sense between those figures and the strong use of chiaroscuro or contrasting light and dark throughout. One of the simplest, on the simplest religious level, the painting can be interpreted as a as depicting a dichotomy. The redemptive power of Christ is symbolized by the purity and symmetry of the top half of the painting, contrasted with the flaws of man, as symbolized by the dark, chaotic scenes in the bottom of that painting. And Raphael made studies of all the figures and incorporated them in a composition of intersecting triangles. If you look here, this is you kind of imagine it, this is a triangle. And if you look at the whole picture, if you see these guys' hands, it's kind of the same thing as a triangle. The lightness up here of the risen Christ, which Christ himself is an inverted triangle. All right? But that down here, okay, we have them looking at this poor boy who is possessed by the demon. Okay, the Everybody's looking different ways, arms are pointing, there's confusion, all right? So there's this contrast between light and dark. And Raphael captures the two incidents of Scripture, the transfiguration, which we looked at last week, and the healing of the demon-possessed boy. Um, But it also captures, in a sense, the vicissitudes of faith. As believers, we've all had at one point a spiritual high, a real mountaintop encounter with the, the living God, whether it be in a church service or a private prayer or meditation. We've all been there, and we've all wanted just to, to capture that moment and bottle it. It was so blessed. However, equally true, maybe more so, is the fact that the highs don't last, do they? And we all experience the low as well. Monday morning comes, and we're back in the chaos and the demands and the confusion of life. Well, we were not alone because Jesus and the disciples had the same experience. After the transfiguration, the next day, Jesus and the three disciples come down from the mountain and as one commentator penned it, it meant a descent into the earthly world of illness, evil, and unbelief. They find a large crowd gathered there. Mark 9, 14 to 16 notes. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to him to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. So Jesus comes down and he finds the other nine disciples in the midst of this chaotic crowd now, arguing with the teachers of the law, while this poor boy is out there probably suffering, and uh, they're probably arguing about the disciples' inability to heal. 
At this point, a man calls out to Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A, a spirit seizes him, suddenly screams, and throws himself into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And Mark adds, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. It foams at the mouth. It gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And Matthew 17 adds, He has seizures and is suffering greatly. Literally, the Greek reads, He is a lunatic and is suffering greatly. Now, many scholars, based upon the symptoms here, conclude that the boy suffered from epilepsy. If you know anything about epilepsy, those are the symptoms of an epileptic fit. But that may be a case of reading all medical knowledge back into antiquity. Although it was present, the Greeks had no real idea about the disease. But there are two other statements in the scriptures that would seem to eliminate the fact that it was simply epilepsy. First, Mark states in 921, it has often thrown him into the fire and water to kill him. There's intent here. The boy is thrown or hurled into the fire. Epileptics, once seized, they just fall to the ground. Here the boy is intentionally thrown into the fire or water with the express intent to destroy him. In true epilepsy, there's no intent. It just comes upon you, it happens. However, with the demon, there's always intent. And an evil intent in this case. And secondly, and probably more important to the point, Jesus addresses the evil spirit and rebukes it, and thus confirming it to be the cause. If it was just the disease, Jesus could have healed without any reference to the demon, as he did with the, the woman with the issue of blood. There was no reference to a demon in that account, but Christ specifically addresses a demon here, and clearly stated in Mark 9.25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And here Jesus tells us it's a demon. So it must have been a demon. And the demon leaves. But confronted with all the arguing, Jesus expresses frustration. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring your son here. These are strong words of disappointment expressed primarily to the disciples, but maybe also the crowd. Words, as one author put it, not of sinful impatience, but holy frustration with the unbelief of his closest friends. Like a mother who wonders when her son will start taking responsibility for his actions, or a school teacher who wonders when students will ever learn to follow instructions, Jesus longed for his disciples to trust him with a simple faith. D.A. Carson of Trinity states that these statements express not only personal disappointment by Jesus, but Jesus' consciousness of his heavenly origin and destiny. 
his disciples' perverse unbelief is actually painful to him. But he must endure it or put up with it. So focusing on the disciples' faith, not so much the crowds, seeing that it had wavered in this situation, it's indicative of how much the disciples needed to grow in their faith and learn. Matthew specifically states, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And Mark adding the words, this kind can come out only by prayer. And this desperate father appeals to Jesus to have mercy on his only son. And the fact that it was his only child heightened the father's desperation. In a very real sense in those days, Children were your retirement, your future. They would be the ones who would be responsible for caring for you in your old age. And we've seen this situation before in the scriptures. The synagogue ruler's only daughter was healed. The raising of the widow of Nain's only son was brought back to life. It was a critical moment for this father. And then comes a powerful interchange between the Father and Jesus that is recorded in Mark 9, 21 through 24. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The father's faith had brought him to Jesus' disciples, but they failed him in the request. But the father still held out faith that Jesus could do something. And he pleads, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If. Haven't we all been there? If We have faith, but our faith is clouded by doubt. Sometimes just a bit, sometimes much. We pray in faith, and maybe it's, it's pure in our heart, but the doubt is in our mind. Or maybe the other way around. We know God can do all things, but our heart doubts He will. Whichever, we know our faith is not perfected yet. And so we cry along with this Father, I do believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus, in his great love and compassion, knows the faith of this man, as well as his doubt. And he grants the man his request. And we can be thankful and praise Jesus that he doesn't wait until our faith is perfected before answering our prayers and bringing healing. Jesus heals the boy by rebuking the evil spirit. We should not look, overlook the fact that he returned the boy to the Father. Whereas Satan's intent is always to divide and destroy, 
Jesus is always to bring unity and wholeness. As we see it here, it restores the relationship between the Father and the Son. And everyone is amazed at the greatness of God. Everything Jesus did was to bring glory to God, to the Father. And yet, even, in this, even after this dramatic healing and the spiritual mountain experience, Jesus again warns of the dark valley he must journey through. The section concludes, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. As dark and as chaotic as the situation was at the bottom of the mountain, it would get worse. While everyone was marveling at the miracles, including the disciples, Jesus points to something even more marvelous. His impending death. Having made the emphatic, listen carefully, Luke records the four negatives that expose the disciples' wrong perspective on Jesus' mission. They did not understand. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp it. They were afraid to inquire further. This shines a light on why the disciples were unable to heal the boy. It's not that they lacked faith, but they had little faith. An immature faith, the kind that moved Peter to confess that Jesus was the Christ, yet in the very next breath rebuked Christ about dying. The idea of a suffering Messiah just did not compute with them. And that's why we have an advantage over the disciples. We know how it ended. They don't. We have to be in their shoes. This is all still future. Perhaps the difficult phrase in that last sentence was that this fact is hidden from them. Who hid it from them? Well, it was either Satan or God. And the text could mean either. And scholars are divided as to which. It's easier for us to think that it's Satan blinding them. But Scripture always limits the blinding of Satan to unbelievers. As in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. More likely, it was God himself who in his sovereign wisdom knows that it's not the time to reveal everything. Just like on the Emmaus Road after Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus first had the dialogue with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus before the whole truth could be revealed and he can reveal himself. And that's probably what is happening here in our passage today. Raphael's picture captured it well. The light above, the dark below. The mountaintop experience of euphoria. The chaos and fear of pain in the valley. 
the glimpse of glory and the reality of life in a sinful world. The contrast is stark, just like our experiences here on earth. As blessed the mountaintop experiences are, they are temporary, even for Jesus. He left glory not to reside on the mountaintop, not to stay in some ivory tower, distancing himself from sinners, but to descend into the darkness and to call and to fellowship with sinners that they might be saved out of the darkness. As Colossians 1.12 says, He who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Dr. Darrell Bach of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary alerts us to this. Sin is a powerful force in our lives. Satan is a strong adversary, and the opponents of righteousness in the world are formidable. Though the issues today may not be the ability to perform exorcism, the need to trust God and be confident that evil can be overcome is as great today as ever. Dependence and faith stand up to the spiritual opposition that comes in life. It does so by drawing on the powerful resources God provides to meet the cosmic forces of darkness face to face. There is war being fought down here in the valley of darkness, and we need to be prepared to stand. This is why we are given the full armor of God, because we are in battle. You know, Paul didn't write, put on the many-colored coat of God. No. He said, put on the whole armor of God. The helmet and the breastplate and the shield and the sword. Because that's what we need every day in the battle. The point of the armor is if we use it, is that we will be able to stand the disciples at the bottom of the mountain faced the darkness of satanic kingdom with a deficient faith. They had clarity, evil was present, and yet they remained powerless because they had little faith and large doubt. And yet the scriptures affirm, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Professor continues, this is what the miracle is designed to reveal. Jesus calls for a faith that is certain that righteousness is stronger than evil. No sin should go undefeated, nor Satan be given more credit than he is due. With all the resources available in Christ, there is no reason for sin to prevail, for our humanness to lead to failure, nor for demonic forces to remain in control. And though we must live down here, in the valley of darkness, the one from up there is our guide and our resource. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. 
He guides me along the right path for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we know too well the darkness at the foot of the mountain. Lord, the pain, the confusion, the challenges, the fears, they're all here, Lord. We need you. For victory is in you alone. And we pray, Lord, that you continue to be our shepherd and help us to follow to stay close and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That we'll get through this valley as you have promised. And that we will reach that mountaintop as we spoke last week. But Lord, reach down, help us in our travels here. Strengthen us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I have a couple of announcements. I'm going to start